Today, we are honored to interview one of the most decorated athletes in the history of roller skating. In this sport, he was a three-time national champion, two-time overall world champion, a two-time record holder, winning 18 individual gold medals. He won five gold, two silver, and one bronze medal in the 1995 Pan Am Games. He's the first Mexican-American to compete in a medal at the Olympic Winter Games. He also won a gold and silver medal in the 2002 Winter Olympics in men's speed skating. He won a gold in the 2000 U.S. All-Round Championships, a silver medal in the 2001 World Single Distance Championships, a bronze in the 2002 World All-Round Championships, and another gold in 2004 U.S. Long Track Championships. Derek, thank you for joining us, and what have you been up to? Well, uh, I'm working at the Oval now, where actually it all took place. Uh, I'm the director of sports now. I went from skating to coaching development to coaching the Olympic team. And then the foundation in which operates the venue uh, brought me in as a youth outreach director. And then I kind of went up to the ranks there, and now I'm a director of sport. Awesome. What have you been doing to stay busy during uh, quarantine, and how has that affected you know your training and your coaching? Um, the, the, the being quarantined has been a little difficult as far as the teams go, uh, but if there was a, a best time to have this disease kind of uh, take over our country, the month of late March and April were the best months because speed skaters don't do anything at that time. Gotcha. It's kind of our off season. You get, you, you, if you make it to the highest levels, you're, you're done about mid-March, the third week of March, and you have the rest of March and all of April off, then you start coming back in May uh, in your group training and start to build up your, your training volume. So it, it kind of happened at a good time for the sport of speed skating, but unfortunately there were some national championships um, that were canceled uh, here in the U.S. And I believe there were some international championships as well. Short track world championships was canceled because of COVID-19. And so they've had to postpone it. They may, they may uh, revive it in another event coming up, but right now it's postponed. Well, hopefully things get, you know, back in full swing at the time that speed skaters need to, continue on with their training and um yeah that'd be great so jumping into it and into your story uh you were born in san Bernardino, california um what was it like being raised there uh by a single father i i when i go out and speak to you know to groups uh i i basically tell them i, I can't imagine my life was any different than any other child at that, that time this is you know the early 70s um we played outside we just did whatever we could to stay active um, it was difficult as a child uh, being part of a divorced, uh, being in a divorced home, I should say. Uh, my mom uh, had to go up north to, to kind of survive. My dad raised us, um, my brother and I, and, um, you know, a typical day was just getting up, going to school. We, you know, we had a key around our neck that we'd lock our door with, and we'd walk to school, go to school, come back, and play stickball in the streets the rest of the afternoon until my dad came home, and, you know, we'd use a broom and a a sock rolled up with duct tape and we use manhole covers and trees for bases and my dad get home at six he'd whistle let the lights would go on he'd, that whistle meant to come home right away or we were in trouble we came in ate some dinner watched some tv and went to bed and that's basically how i remember my life it was pretty insignificant uh, but for me it really changed when i got into roller skating at, at age 14. so at the age of 17 while you were working towards mastering this craft in roller skating you also worked at mcdonald's most athletes at that age are only concerned with sports. What motivated you to get a job so early on in your life? Uh, survival. I, I, I left home at 17 uh, to chase this dream of uh, 
at the time was roller skating. So um, when I got into roller skating at 14, I, I went to a roller rink on a Friday night and, and didn't have any money after I paid admission to skate rental and I was thirsty and hungry. And I learned that that night there was a two lap race every Friday night at nine o'clock. The DJ would turn the white lights on and they announced you come out in ages. And if you won your two lap race, you got a ticket for a free drink and a snack bar. So I, I raced because I was thirsty. I went out there, got blown away, but it was hooked immediately on, on being on skates. So I came back, you know, those next few years, I just kept coming back trying to win that race. I got, I saved up some money, was mowing lawns, um, had a paper route to get, some, get a pair of uh, roller skates, some speed skates, actual speed skates. I got better. I made the speed skating team. I started competing and got to a national level, but wasn't very good. So at one of the national events I went to in 1987, a coach I had met, Virgil Dooley, who was a, a national renowned coach from Michigan, but lived in Florida, saw me, you know, getting beat again and said, hey, you know what? You got a lot of heart, but you didn't know how to race. If you ever get serious about skating, give me a call. He was known for taking kids in, um, you know, early 20s or late teens and training them to make U.S. teams. And it was a win-win situation for both him the skater and his club younger club athletes that aspired to get to that level so uh, i graduated high school early uh had ap classes that i used my credits for uh opted to take it out a half a semester early i bought a one-way ticket packed a bike and a bag and uh went to to florida didn't know anybody but this guy virgil and from that point on i i, I was with him but i had to I had to pay for my uh you know my room and board there and i was renting the room and after about two weeks, I ran out of money because I went there with some traveler's checks and paying for rent and food and meat fees and coaching fees. Um, I was broke and looking for a place to work. And luckily, the, there was a, a McDonald's opening up just down outside of his subdivision. And so my first job was at the Golden Arches of McDonald's. Wow. In your book, you tell a story, too, about um, when they would change from breakfast to lunch, the leftover <laughs> food. Right. Am I correct? Yeah. The leftover yeah. food from breakfast, they would throw it out and you would go out back and you would eat as much as you could. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's McDonald's freshest policy. I learned it on day one and I remember going there and I was pretty hungry anyway, but as you know, when you get a job, you got to work two weeks to get a paycheck. So there was two more weeks that I was broke before I, I even got a paycheck from them. I was already writing IOUs to Virgil for a, a pop tart or a hot pocket, whatever he had you know, in his, in his garage or in his cabinets. Uh, at one point I was eating uh, his last year's frozen fundraising Krispy Kreme donuts for his team fundraiser because they were in the freezer and he wasn't going to eat them. And he said, go ahead, have Adam. I had nothing. I was just broke and I didn't want to go back to California. So when you're, when you're working at McDonald's, yeah, when you're, I was working in the back, I was the one that was making the egg muffins and the, and the folded egg sandwiches and hot cakes. And um, they tell you that if, uh, when you put, a sandwich in the heating bin behind the cashier you're supposed to put a number behind it and that number signifies that that sandwich has been in the heating bin for 10 minutes if you look up if the manager comes by and sees that that sandwich is in there for longer than 10 minutes he pulls the number puts it back in the stack grabs out those sandwiches there could be three five seven or two throws them in the trash and because they're no longer considered fresh by mcdonald's standards so i remember just starving i was starving in the back making these sandwiches i look over and watch the the, the manager do that. And I thought to myself, you've got to be kidding. So sure enough, that day about 1045, you know, the manager says, uh, who's going to throw the trash out? And I said, I will. <laughs> so I ran over there and I, I grabbed the trash from all over, you know, and I grabbed the trash from behind the, the grill area there and the bathrooms and the lobby. And I went out to the, 
the dumpster wherever we threw the trash away and I would check around and make sure no one was looking. And I would, I remember tie, I used to tie the bags in double knots where the food was in the back grill. So I'd go to those bags and open them up and find those Egg McMuffins that were just cold and hadn't been eaten and I'd, I'd eat them. I ate as much as I could until, uh, you know, for the next two weeks until I got my first paycheck and that's how I survived. Unbelievable. I was ashamed. I mean, it was definitely ashamed at first, but man, when you have a passion for something and it drives you, like skating drove me, um, it was the first step of many that I had to kind of, you know, knock on that door, push it or open it just to get to the next step, the next week, the next day. Um, and if it meant eating out of a trash can, uh, you know, that's what it was for that, those two weeks. I think that's a great example of doing whatever it takes to accomplish your dream. Um, but why was skating so intriguing to you beyond the race? Like what made you want to go to the rink every day and find a team even? How did you go about finding a team? I think it was a combination of a, a lot of different things. Uh, and if I look at my life, there was a lot of circumstance where I was able to keep making those steps forward. And for skating, for me, first of all, it was very social at first. Um, you know, I was this Mexican-American kid. I went to roller rink. There wasn't many people that looked my color at the, at the roller rink. There was a lot of Caucasian people and some, maybe some Asian people. But I live in a predominantly black and Af uh, African-American and Hispanic neighborhood. So that's all I saw. And no one skated, really. So uh, when I went there, I met some new people. I thought it was kind of cool. I was socializing. I'm a little bit chatty, as it is, as you can tell, probably on this, on this interview. Um, and then as I started going more and more, I started meeting more kids. And whose parents weren't divorced, who had, you know, dreams of doing different things. And I just was attracted to that. And I met my, my parents, since they were divorced, my dad um, wasn't very supportive. of. He didn't understand skating. He wasn't very supportive of it, but he didn't get it. Um, I, I understand that now, being, you know, a father and being older now. Um, he knew basketball, he knew baseball, uh, soccer, boxing, just those, those traditional Latin American sports to, to him, roller skating was a little, um, uh, hate to use this word, but a little sissy sport. That's what he called it. It was a sissy sport for him. Uh, I remember shaving my legs at one point when I started cycling because it, you know, wind resistance and, and, to reduce some uh, chance of infection if you crash. And he looked at me like I was a little, you know, off when he saw that I shaved my legs and I got teased about it from my family. I mean, no one really understood it. And my dad loved baseball. I remember I was a pretty good baseball player from the age of eight to 12 as a kid, just playing, you know, pop Warner, whatever it was. And I made all stars. I would steal bases. I was pretty good, but I hated the games because my dad was there. He would show up for the games. He wouldn't take me to practice or play catch with me, but he'd show up behind the backstop when I'm getting ready to go up to the, to the, to the mound and if I'd strike out, you could hear him saying, Gee, come on. And, you know, he would just back there yelling and griping. And I was so embarrassed. I just, I remember just the, the horrible feeling I had in my stomach going to the mound to bat when he was there. Uh, or, or if I dropped a pop fly or a grounder. And, and so when I got into skating and he didn't like it and no one really in my family liked it, it became my sport. So there were times when, you know, my dad couldn't, he couldn't afford me to go to the rink. So I would save lunch money on the table. He, every morning he'd put a dollar of lunch money on the table. And I would put that dollar in my Friday night fund in my pocket and I'd make a bologna and bread sandwich, wrap it in a napkin and put it in my bag or something. And that was my, my lunch. I just, I wanted to get to the roller rink to try to win that race. And I was meeting these people and it was just a great social thing for me. And I met some great, great friends who stayed with me for the next few years and helped me get to that next level. But I think it was first social that I started getting, I wasn't, really good at, at uh, roller skating, I tried hard. And even throughout my whole career, 
if you ask anybody, probably say, it'll say, he wasn't the best technical skater when I started. He didn't have a lot of great talent, but I worked my butt off. And, and part of that, I think, was being a small guy against these bigger athletes, and I was trying to work harder to stay with them. But it, my whole life, I was one of the smallest guys on the team and on a relay. And I remember when I went to my first Olympic Games, uh, the Japanese women's team was uh, for, Jap for Japan speed skating was bigger than I was. So, you know, it's just, it's just part of my, my story, I guess. And, uh, but I was really attracted at first to just the social part of it. And then as I got better and started to see some talent and was winning these races at these local meets and be able to go to nationals, um, I really enjoyed it and got into that technical side where, and I'm, I'm a pretty meticulous guy where I, I set goals. And um, if you, if you would see inside my office right now, everything's lined up just perfectly and letters are stacked evenly. And I just, you know, I love my lines, but, that's how I, 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 when I, when I lived on my own and I had a, a corner of a room to live in and I had all my clothes that belonged to me, I had to learn how to organize and be efficient. And that kind of spread throughout my, my life and every aspect of my life, I should say. It's funny you say that because we just did an interview with Mike Boyle, um, kind of a pioneer for strength and conditioning. And he said, for the most part, all the people that he know that have been successful are a little bit quirky or <laughs> a little bit off or do something different. I think it's funny that you mentioned that because obviously, as we mentioned earlier, you've been so successful in the sport and in life in general, and you do have that little bit of quirkiness. So he obviously wasn't wrong. Yeah. And everybody's different. I I've coached guys and throughout my career, I've seen guys that were far more talented than me, but didn't want it as bad as I did. And I, I didn't beat a lot of people at the beginning of my career. I think I just lasted longer. People got tired. Like, ah, I'm done and they quit, but they were way better than I was. They were far more physically uh, stronger and technically more sound than I was, but I just kept plugging away and I had a great coaches in my life to help me figure out what worked best for me, help me think about the sport, become a student of the sport. And then I, you know, when, as I got to a elite level and I started coaching, I had skaters, I had a one skater um, and you may remember his name, Chad Hedrick, probably the most gifted athlete skater, I should say, I've ever seen. He didn't. He could. He could wake up, put skates on, and go set a world record. He was just that talented, um, and gifted on skates. He could float. Um, Apollo was the same way. Apollo Ono could float on skates, but he was very disciplined. I admire his discipline because he could strategize whether whether it's in a race or his training program or the season or a four-year quad. He was so um, organized on what he want and deliberate on what he wanted to do. I think it's why he had so much success for so long, but every athlete's different for me. I had to find what worked for me. And for me, it was making plans, you know, setting goals and staying on those steps so that I could have some type of direction. You just touched on it briefly before, uh, but you didn't really have the support of your father or your father. So who were your supporters early on and how difficult was it not having the support of your father until just before the Olympics? Um, I was, it was, I mean, at the time it was very hard not having the, the, every, everybody, I think every guy or, or girl wants to have their dad or their mom say, I'm proud of you. Sure. But my, my dad just, he just, again, he didn't get it. I think he was a little afraid of not knowing it. And I remember my first gold medal, I went for inline skating. I went to New Zealand, Hastings, New Zealand. Um, my first year I made the world team and I got a gold medal in a relay. And I remember running to the hotel and calling my dad and saying, Hey, I got my first gold medal and his response was, uh, Hey, that's great. You know, Eric, my little, little brother just made all stars and started talking about my brother. He just didn't know how to respond to that. Yeah. And so I immediately was, was 
crushed thinking like, man, I, I, I don't know what I can do to make this guy proud of me kind of a thing. And I think in the back of my mind, I always wanted him to be proud, but he just, he didn't understand what I was doing. And, and it wasn't until, and, and I think that, again, that was a, a blessing in disguise because it became my sport and the people around the team, the, the mothers of my friends who were team mothers in the team, they were the ones that picked me up and took me to the practice and took me home and took me to, to local meets and helped fundraise. From my whole career as a, in California from the time I was 14 until I was 17 and left, I never had to pay for a national event to go to nationals. There, there were these two mothers on the team that organized every bake sale, raffle, car wash, and did a majority of the work and I was one of the four to five athletes every year that made nationals. And because I did, they were, the money went to a pot and I got my flight, my, my room, and my hotel paid for. Wow. I would have never, ever took a step out of, out of Southern California if it wasn't for those parents. And as I went on through my career and I moved to Florida, there was another group of parents who did that. They didn't, they didn't need the money. They were probably well-to-do and their kids were fine and they could pay their own way. But they saw so many dreams in the kids that were in those programs and they were out there just fundraising as best they could. And then I got my way paid. It was, again, I, the, the narrative of my story, and if you read my book, it's, it's about how I was so fortunate to have people around my, in me in my path that came on my path that saw I had a dream that couldn't see the dream itself, but saw I had a dream and for some reason stepped in my path and helped me. So when my dad wasn't there, it was people that were around me that helped me build that pathway. And everywhere I went, it continued, and I'm still friends with them. That's why it was so, for me, so moving when I won and I was on the podium. I saw the faces of so many people when I, when I accepted that medal and saw the American flag being raised and the national anthem playing. It was just the coolest thing, and that was my, that was my podium moment at the Olympics. Yeah, Garrett and I actually had the chance to watch that video prior to this interview, and I'm not lying. I got chills a little bit just – <laughs> watching the emotion on you and you're obviously so calm cool and collected during the race but just seeing you jumping for joy on the podium obviously made it so worth it and i'm sure that all of those people who supported you were just as proud and just as happy so that's amazing and that was a very uh uncertain time i mean we we're just post september 11th we didn't know if we were gonna even have a games uh but you know mick came in and said we're having the games and there was security everywhere and and i, I just remember um going part of my story is that when the world trade center towers were attacked um on september 11th i was flying on the 10th or i arrived on the 10th to florida at that time i was married my my then wife was was pregnant and i stopped in before i was going to new york to my for my coach virgil daughter's wedding um i woke up on the 10th i'm sorry i woke up i got there on the 10th and then i woke up on the 11th the world changed uh, I was stuck in, in Florida for 10 days because airspace was restricted. And you guys may remember that. Um, but in that 10 days, I, I quit speed skating. This is five and a half months out from the games. But I felt so embarrassed to be a speed skater. I put so much value on my life for years. From the time I was 14 until then, this, I'm going to be, I was 31 years old, um, about literally going around in circles. That was how I defined myself. And then I saw these, these images of people being pulled out of the rubble and um, I felt embarrassed. I didn't, I, I didn't want to skate. I wanted to help somehow. And so I came back to Utah and told my coaches, hey, I'm, I'm done. I can't do this. My, you know, my, my heart is broken. My mind is just scrambled. Um, my soul is crushed. I, I didn't know what to do. And 
I was telling my, my friends at Home Depot and my, my um, department managers, hey, maybe you should give this job to somebody else because I don't think I'm going to be there. I, I, just, I, can't, I couldn't practice without breaking down and crying and leaving the rink when I got back. And um, it took a bunch of sports psychologists to sit down with me for a while. And over the next few weeks, um, I decided if I was going to escape, it wasn't for any medals or for me or anything. It was about those victims, September 11th. So my whole mindset going into the games was, was if, if I had a bad practice, I thought about those victims. Uh, you know, a, a bad run or a ride or whatever it was, it wasn't about that. It was about them. Because I knew if, if I qualified for the two races that I could qualify for at the games, it was a 5,000 meter, which was a six-minute race, and the 1,500 meter, which is about two minutes. So I had eight minutes to hopefully bring these people, if I was even on TV, to change their, their mind thoughts and celebrate something for eight minutes that's all I had and that was my whole mindset going into the game so when I got in the games and I had that world record uh, briefly in the 5k and then I came back and had the world record and won the gold in the 1500 it it I knew that it wasn't about me I had I actually was able to carry the World Trade Center flag in the opening ceremonies which absolutely defined my games and ignited me for that great race in the 5,000 meter the first day and when I won those medals I felt that those people were there. I felt their presence. And when I was holding the flag in the, on the opening ceremonies, I felt somebody say like, you know, the breath, when the wind came through, it was like the breath of the victims were, were speaking to all of us. And out of those eight people that carried the flag, five of us wanted medals. It was, it was just such an inspiring moment. And, and time stood still for not only us on the stage, but everywhere around the world that was watching that, that was affected by that tragedy. So people are so important in what we do. And, um, yeah, when, when you saw me, oh, that emotion, it was because I felt everybody in that stadium was singing the national anthem, and I felt the volume of their voices on my chest. And when I looked up and saw that flag, I could see the faces of the people that helped me get there, and I just started to cry. Wow. That's a really powerful, motivating factor. I know that a lot of people preach that when you're feeling down and it's a tough day, you don't want to go train, you don't want to do whatever dream you're trying to accomplish you have to fall back on that why that reason why you're in the first place and your sense of country is an amazing one especially for an olympic athlete so i'm sure all those people were honored to have you representing them and um, you definitely took everyone's mind off of it for those eight minutes like you said um, but getting back to that transition in the first place you were the most decorated athlete in the history of roller skating so why did you decide to close that chapter of your life and begin speed skating on ice in 1996? Uh, honestly, it was, it was the lure of the games. I mean, I was 26 years old when I, when I retired from inline skating. And throughout my career on wheels, uh, I, had, I had basically accomplished every goal that I could. I, I wanted to win a medal at first, but I wanted a relay medal, relay gold. Then I wanted to win individual medals, and I, I started winning individual medals. Then I wanted to win an overall title. I did that twice. Uh, when I did that, I was looking for new goals, and it was then it was I want to win the shortest distance and the longest distance at the same World Championships. Did that, um, had some young guys coming in, was trying to um, pass on that, you know, whatever my experiences and and my beliefs, and I had a, some great mentors ahead of me that did the same for me. And so, at one point, um, I just I was kind of out of new goals to try, but. And I was kind of old for for inline skater, 26. It's come on the outskirts of you know of uh, being competitive because it's a young sport. And a friend of mine named Casey Boudier, who was top 10 in the country but never made a U.S. team, 
he got tired of waiting for USA Roller Sports to, to get their name in the hat for an Olympic berth. And they've been telling us since 1984 that there was going to be uh, Olympic Roller Sports in the summer games, in the next games, next game, and so on. So he got tired of waiting for it. He made a move over to the ice. He skated a, a full a full winter or a partial winter on, and made the Olympic team in 94 in Lillehammer. Called me from Lillehammer and said, dude, I'm skating the Olympics. And I was green with envy, but I was number one in the world on roller skates. So I was hoping that 96 would include the games in Atlanta when it didn't. Um, we made a choice or I made a choice and I basically drove from, I was in Colorado Springs, drove to Milwaukee. We were there for, we came back from world championship. Uh, I had driven to Colorado Springs to train. So I drove to Milwaukee, walked in and borrowed some kids skates and went out there and tried it. And then I went home and came back, uh, spent about two weeks on the ice, qualified for a national championship, but not because I was any good. I was just an elite athlete, but I could skate. But I was horrible. I was awkward. I was really choppy. And I was scratching the ice everywhere. But I had a good set of lungs and legs on me. Uh, you know, I and I made a. I got two bronze medals in my first national championship. Uh, but I was far off the leaders, and and got two medals and went home. And no one really said anything to me. And it wasn't until about two weeks later I got a call saying I could be a, a um, a training partner. Uh, I was a discretionary spot, and the games were in uh, you know in a year and a half in Nagano, Japan. So. Um, that point i made a decision i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna go all in and see if i can get to the olympic games and it, at that time it was just to walk behind my country's flag into the stadium and compete that was my only goal and then i was gonna be done and retired and move on in my life so what were the most challenging parts of that transition uh i think the process more than anything else um there's you know i, I always teach there's the one two threes of skating but when you're coming from inline skating, it's almost like a two, one, three. They're, the steps are different because on inline skates, <clears throat> excuse me, when you land your skate, you immediately, immediately have friction, and that's when you can push. When your body is over your skates, when your body gets away from your skate, now there's no friction. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm sorry, there's, yeah, there's no friction or weight, so you slip out away from your, from your skate, and you lose that, that uh, force. On ice, when you land on your skate, you have to wait. It's a way for your body to transfer its weight over and then transfer back. And as it's moving away from your skate, your skate carves into the ice and now you can push. So the whole process is reversed and, and um, it, it's skating, but it's a different timing. So I would go out and practice and get behind the ice skaters and they have this nice fluid motion. I was feeling really good and they'd move out of the way and I had to push the wind and all of a sudden I'm going, eep, eep pushing too early on my skates and and ice skates are flat you know they have 90 degree edges and hockey skates have that hollow so on hockey skates you're always gripping on ice skates you grip on your outer edge you slide on your inner on your flat and you grip when you're pushing but if your timing is too is off and you push across that flat you lose power and force and that to me was the hardest part of the transition because for 20 oh, I don't know how many years of my life maybe 15 years of my life on skates I had one process and now I'm having to actually literally think out every step and count my strokes and tell myself what to do. Because when I got tired, my body went to what it automatically knew and that was pushing across the blade and I would go slower. And it took years, six years for me to correct that or at least manage it. It's crazy. You went from, you know, roller blades to on ice because as a hockey player, I tried speed skating one summer. I must have been 14 or whatever it was, and it was short track, wasn't long track. 
but it was hard to learn like the crossovers. And not only that, you have to get so low and you know, you growing up, the legs of speed skaters is absolutely insane. They're <laughs> just tree trunks, just freak athletes. Their legs are massive, but it was so difficult to learn that, but it was honestly so much fun. You, you fly out there, you just, it, it was a blast. Um, but getting it's a great back, feeling when you're doing it right. When you're when you're on the on the right angle and lean, it's a great feeling. When you're just feel like you're you're on rails, right? Yeah, you feel like you're gonna fall over though. But you're just leaning into <laughs> it and keep going. It was a blast. Um, I wish I would have continued to do it. I think it would have really helped in transition to hockey, just with the whole balance and the strength and the legs and all that stuff. Oh, for sure. But back to your story. Only a year after transitioning from roller to ice, uh, you won first place in the American Cup Championships. And then two, two years later, you were battling for a spot on the U.S. Olympic team and were scheduled to race in the last qualifier. However, the night before, there was an issue with how the qualifying times were entered and you were bumped from the race. Can you explain what happened and how disappointed uh, that feeling was? Uh, I was devastated. Um, the way the Olympics work, so well, the way each event works is that throughout the year, you have Olympic qualifying events and your time from that international event is your ranking. And at the end, at the, at the last World Cup, before the Olympics, they look at all the rankings and if only the top 32 men in the world get to skate the 5K. And it's a little bit more for the 1500 because the races are shorter and so, and there's time that they have to, concerns they have to have for television. So after the World Cups, I was, my ranking was 32. Great, I, I made the world ranking list. I had qualified through our US trials with only the top, we had three American spots to get into the Olympics. I qualified as a third spot. So I'm going to the games. I was super excited, got a big bag of clothing, got my ticket to Japan. That's when I actually, my dad and I, I really got involved. Uh, my dad and my mom actually flew to Japan. Um, unfortunately, when they got there, I, I, was, I told them the bad news, but I'm gonna tell you now, but the night before the race, they go through all the times and they validate that the ranking of a time is where it was set, who the officials were, that it was a legitimate time. It can't be just a random time at some you know, weekend time trial somewhere. So as they were going through, they realized one of the, one of the officials that was officiating that race was from Kazakhstan. And he, after the race entries were completed, he goes, wait a second, this is the story I got. He knew that his skater from his country was in the, in the top ranking or faster than my time. So he went back, called the team leaders, looked at all the records, found the skater's ranking, who was 0.012 seconds faster than me. So at that moment, they, as they should, they took me out, put him in. I became a 33rd ranked skater. And the next day, I'm going there to warm up for my race, which is the day before, it's the opening ceremony, the day before the first race, which is the 5,000 meters. And I walk in the building, and my coaches are out there just with their hands like this. They're yelling at the officials, and I come over and go, what's going on? And they kind of shoved me off, said, just go warm up. Did my whole race prep warm up without my coach there, and I finally came over and he and our team leader come up and say, hey, we got some bad news. And they told me a story. And they tried to petition for an extra pair. But they said, no, 32 skaters, max, that's it. So I was a spectator. Absolutely devastated. I had gone through, and by that time, I had about $30,000 saved from all my race winnings and inline skating. And I financed, solely financed my move from inline to ice. And that year and a half before the Olympic Games in Japan, I went through $30,000. I was broke. I was back to mowing lawns and babysitting and I worked at a roller rink. I was a disco daddy at a roller rink. I put on a 
a, you know, a, a hat and, got, and glasses and a medallion. And I went out there and danced on skates as a mascot for disco night. Anything I could do to make, to make some money to, to continue to skate and pay my rent. Um, so all that was happening. And all of a sudden I made the games, thought it was, Hey, it was worth it. I'm broke, but I'm going to the games. And I got there and I couldn't skate. And I remember being 28 years old, um, got back to Olympic village. I walked around behind, I think it was like the China dorm and the Japanese dorm. I went into a corner. I just bawled my eyes out 20 years old, just cry like a baby. Cause I couldn't do anything about it. And I gathered myself and I went, I went back uh, to our dorm. And um, then, you know, I just tried to be the best teammate. I tried to, um, like Alex was talking about, you know, the podcast I watched from you guys, uh, uh, the Al Goli, Alex, um, I can't remember her last name. Rigsby. Well, Rigsby. Cavallini now. It used to be yeah. Rigsby. So, uh, yeah, I was just trying to be the best teammate. I was getting water bottles. I was carrying bags. I was doing whatever I could just to go for her out there, you know, go for this, go for that. Because I, I know these guys were living their Olympic dreams as well. Um, but I was not satisfied when I left Japan and I came back and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And that's when the Home Depot got involved. I was, I was quote unquote an Olympian because I qualified for the games, even though I didn't skate. And that was kind of a loophole that allowed me to, to apply for a job program that absolutely changed my life in the direction I was going. I, I was able to work part-time for full-time benefits, had health insurance. I could bank all my hours in, in the summer and fall spring, summer, and fall, and I could race the winter and still get a paycheck. And that was the only reason I was able to skate. And every year I got a little bit better. I was 33rd and then 10th and 20th. And then, you know, uh, what, 12th, I think. And then a silver medal, as you mentioned, in the, the year before the games at a test event. Going back, we may need a picture of you being a disco daddy because I'd really <laughs> like to see that. <laughs> it was cool. I had a leather jacket with a fur medallion and a leisure suit. That's awesome. Uh, it was it was funny. That's awesome. Um, and even though you didn't get to race in the games, I think it's still such an accomplishment that two years after you made the transition from rollerblading to ice, you were qualifying for the Olympic Games. Obviously very devastating because you had made the team and you were going to represent the United States, which, as you had mentioned before, was your goal of transferring over, the whole reason that you decided to transfer over. But still no less impressive that two years later, less than two years, you were already – on the Olympic team. Thanks. Uh, it, it's a it's a very tight. It was difficult at first. A ter- very tight in a group of people. Like I think ice skaters are very territorial. And when we came in, because Casey was the first one to kind of break the mold, and he all of a sudden was the best guy. And he had been on the ice for less than a year, and he was the best distance skater. And there was there wasn't a, a lot of depth in distance skating at that time. Everybody, everybody wanted to be Dan Jansen or Bonnie Blair, who were sprinters. Yeah. So that was also part of the circumstance I talked about earlier. Is that I came in at, at a good time. Um, if I would have came in four years later, there was a lot more of us distance skaters that would have been harder to make a team. But uh, yeah, they, I was able to come in and, and get some help from some good coaches and, and learn about the sport. And, uh, and then I was, I was hooked. Again, I just wanted to get better. Uh, I was a student of the sport. I'd learned about just everything I could from bending and rocking blades to, to the, how the boots are made and how I could stiffen them up where I needed to be. Uh, looked at more ice skaters and what they were doing with how they, why were they better than me? What am I not doing on the ice? And uh, just really trying to every day tick away and try to find those tenths and hundreds of a second over the, over the next six years. You mentioned Alex Cavallini, the goalie for USA women's ice hockey. We talked about this with, with her, but being an Olympic athlete is so extraordinary and there are so few opportunities to compete an athlete's prime is very limited. Like you talked about roller hockey, 26 is already too old. So each missed opportunity leads to another four-year wait. 
How did you use the heartbreaking news of 0.012 seconds short to motivate you for the future Olympics? And were there challenging decisions that followed with even continuing to chase this dream at all? Derek's story isn't over yet. Part two of this interview will be released Monday, June 1st.